The Gladys Mockdown fails. Australia's Morrison vacuum continues. The UK opens up and gives up. And the good news is about Greenland. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. What a huge week it's been. Joining me from lockdown, the seemingly never-ending lockdown, some models say mid-August, some models say it'll be lucky if it's October before you're free to move around again, Van, is the great Van Badham. How are you, Van? I miss you terribly. I'm I miss a bit you too. over this forced separation. I'm sure everyone can tell from our voices that we're a couple who does not really thrive being separated. And uh, I'm a little bit blue. I'm not going to lie, people. I'm missing my man and I'm a little bit blue. I miss you too. I think the whole country is suffering at the moment. Over half the population of Australia is in now some form of lockdown or another. Uh, Welcome, South Australia. Welcome. Yes, it's been a while since you've been here with us uh, in the lockdown, but, uh, you know, you're always welcome to join us. Hopefully hopefully we won't be here very long. Um, Before we do this show, everybody, Ben and I usually have a bit of a chat about uh, the topics that we want to cover and who's going to speak about what and and how it's going to roll. And before this... Uh, conversation started with the microphones on we were going yeah we, we can't make it too bleak you know we've got to keep it light and bright quite frankly Ben we've just started and I feel like crying because we're talking about lockdown again well let's let's get into it we will try and keep it short so we can get to the good news there is good news there is good news folks keep you know, listening I might start the program with some good news good news for me and for people who are interested in my work my book Q and on and on is now officially available for pre-order so if you go to the Hardy Grant uh, website um, or just do a Google search for Van Batham, QAnon and On is the name of the book. And you can buy my book and be the first to read all my crazy tales of the people who, who genuinely believe Queen Elizabeth II is a lizard. So that's some good news. So just trying to get some positivity in there. i got to say, just based on the average life of lizards, that's simply not possible. Um, <laughs> They're from outer space, Ben. Oh, my oh God. outer space lizards. Oh, I always forget they have a different uh, genealogical situation going on. Uh, of the many tales my book uh, contains, I'd just like everybody to know I found out in the course of my research that 12 million Americans believe that lizard people live amongst us. Oh, wow. I'm almost surprised it's as few as 12 million. <laughs> Um, anyway, we're not going to talk too much about the US today because I just, I think I would start weeping openly on air, uh, given given my uh, position last year about how much of a failed state the US is. Now they have their vaccination program well and truly rolled out, whereas Gladys's mockdown in Sydney, Van, has led to 110 new cases in New South Wales today. There are currently... 1,418, 1,418 people infected in New South Wales over the last month. There are 73 people yesterday who were diagnosed who were not in isolation for their entire period and 43 who were not in isolation at all while infectious. Well, it's been absolutely terrifying to watch the unravelling of Gladys Berejiklian over the course of this lockdown. And, of course, everybody remembers that the Berejiklian Liberal government in New South Wales stalled locking down. We weren't even going to call it a lockdown. There was that famous quote that, oh, you can call it what I like. If you, you what you like, if you want to call it a lockdown, call it a lockdown. But I'm, you know, not getting into the language kind of thing that she went on about. Well, it's a lockdown now. And just seeing the Premier, who looks as if she hasn't slept in the past week, getting very tetchy in the press conferences, you know, the information is still a bit unstable. It's all a bit, it's all getting a bit rough 
whenever we get our coronavirus figures for the day. And of course, there are questions that they're not quite capable of answering. There has been a lot of satire around. There was a meme going around saying, "Oh, in New South Wales, are only there are only forty three reasons why you can't." why you can leave your house, 43 exemptions um, to the lockdown and things like that. You know, it's been this sort of yeah. big joke about how loose it's been. Well, it's getting really serious now and you can see it on the on the Premier's face. It's a real concern. And, of course, in the past week they've had cases turn up in parts of regional New South Wales um, and communities outside of Sydney with no idea how those particular um, contacts were made. So, yeah, it's terrifying. It's pretty grim. I see Orange, Blaney and Carbone. Is that how you say it? I'm not from New South Wales, but they've all now gone into a seven-day lockdown. I think one of the one of the things that struck me today, you know, we've been doing this show, you know, 11 months we've been doing this show, I think, now. Uh, and, of course, COVID has been a feature of it the entire time. In the last few weeks, it's been really the dominant topic, and you can understand why. I know we've had lots of lots of people contact us about various COVID issues, and I want to thank everybody for, for doing that. But one of the things that struck me today was I saw that 106 people are in hospital in New South Wales, 23 are in ICU, and 11 are on ventilators. And when I when I went back to last week's episode. Those numbers are almost exactly double. They're almost exactly double. And you think, you know, I think to my, myself about the fact that we're a month, almost a month into a lockdown and the numbers in hospital have doubled. Like it just shows a complete mismanagement of what's been required. You know, like they just, they, they, they're sort of pseudo-libertarian nonsense that they carried on with this sort of common sense and common sense and common sense well common sense tells you if you tell people if you tell a third of the working people they've got no leave and if they don't go to work they don't get paid common sense tells you they're going to go to work because they've got to get paid and that seems to be what's happened in New South Wales and lo and behold now we've got nearly 1,500 people infected with COVID. Oh, yeah, look, absolutely. And, I mean, and this is the thing. You and I have talked about this, that the the problem with having Liberal governments responding to this crisis, responding to this crisis or in charge of responding to this crisis is there's a fundamental coronavirus provokes a, a terrible ideological challenge for the Liberal way of thinking. I mean, these are people who genuinely believe that markets solve everything. Like yeah. Tim Wilson, my one of my least favourite MPs, I mean, I have a few, but yeah. he's definitely one of them. Yeah. He, instead of swearing um, on the Bible or another holy book when he was admitted to Parliament, he swore on a copy of Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Friedman. I've written about this in my Guardian columns because mm. I just find this so obscene. In Capitalism and Freedom, Milton Friedman talks about how voting is a market distortion and really, you know, we should be determining all of our government, you know, interrelations. Government should be tiny. The market should do everything. You know, where people spend their money is where people want to have resources allocated and therefore there's no need for government. Like Tim Wilson genuinely believes in this stuff. He held that book instead of a Bible or a Quran or, you know, the poetry of Margaret Atwood or anything that has, like, meaning and connection to humanity and literally grasp this, like, bizarre, hard-right ideological tract about replacing social compacts with markets and spending and and this is the the ideological worldview that they possess that it's where you spend money is how you determine how society should operate well coronavirus doesn't care about money coronavirus doesn't appeal to a market it's not a market function coronavirus is interested in one thing and that's replicating lots of coronavirus so yeah. it's marvelous virus species can continue 
And the problem that the Liberals have is that they have been drinking the neoliberal Kool-Aid, the Friedman-esque nut juice, for the past 40 years. And they don't believe in collective solutions or government interventions or telling businesses to close because we have to keep ourselves alive. And you saw all this writing from, you know, pro-neoliberal ideologues like that lunatic in um, in the financial review. He's <sighs> like, you know, my dad, he's had a good life and I'm sure he wouldn't mind dying if it meant the market wasn't obstructed. And this kind of, you know, kill grandma for the economy kind of oh, yeah. just it's- craziness that has been going on. And it means they're fundamentally, ideologically uh, you know, running at contretemps to what is physically going on in the world. You know, like there's a really great Twitter account that I recommend everyone follow um, who's a friend of Ben and mine's called Matt T. Burke. So on Twitter it's just at Matt T. Burke, no dots or anything. And he's just constantly tweeting pay people to stay home, pay people to stay home. The government just pay people to stay home and people will stay home. And, of course, we had... Gladys come out come out today, like as if she was genuinely shocked that people were going to work because they had to earn money to live. Well, and it's just like, I yes, Gladys, this is the system you have built where everything becomes a market decision. And if you're not working and you can't participate in that market, you, you can't do anything. You built a system that looked like this, you and all your little Liberal Party friends. I have, I have to say I, I, I'm sort of observing that almost every time we do the show there's some new thing that that just it floors me with surprise and and today's was that they they're going to fine businesses $10,000 if they force people to come to work when they could be working from home again we're what a month into this lockdown i can't uh, you know we've we've and I admit, we've done a few of these in Victoria, but it just boggles my mind that it takes a month for the state government to get to a, to the point where it goes, oh, hang on a minute, maybe maybe we need to put some rules around employers here. Maybe, maybe part of the issue is what people who exercise power over other people are doing to those people, and maybe that's having an impact. It, it just... It, Again, it's not again, been a month. Again, it's been it's eighteen months. Eighteen months of this, yeah. all over the world. You know, community after community, government after government, local, state, federal, international levels. We know what to do now. We absolutely know what to do. You you lock down hard. You lock down early. You put in support so people can continue to eat, pay rent, and keep the lights on. That's what you, that's how you stop the spread of the virus. And, of course, the chief health officer in New South Wales has been coming out and desperately trying to get through to people that, because, you know, people in mm. New South Wales, they're in pockets of people having parties and getting together and no problem. And she's like, the Delta variant is not like the coronavirus of 18 months ago. She's like, it's more virulent. It's more contagious. She's not entirely convinced that it's safe to walk around outside and just pretend that everything's fine and have no mask on. She's like, the old social distancing rules of 1.5 metres, they don't stick anymore. Yeah. Like, it's not enough. That's not enough. You know, we have to be absolutely militantly careful because this thing is just travelling like wildfire. I mean, you only have to ask Indonesia or India and or Brazil to see just how dangerous it is. And, of course, I know you hate talking about America, but there are pockets um, of the United States where Delta is absolutely flattening people yeah, because places that have, like, high um, vaccine refusal and there are communities who are influenced by this nonsense culture war around, you know, like vaccines are are somehow left and not not getting a vaccine is somehow right and if you're on the right, well, don't get the vaccine. It is absolute madness. And, of course, it's ripping through those communities like a chainsaw. Then I want to come back to the international um, situation shortly. I do want to just stick domestically for a minute because, of course. (laughs) Because talking about America depresses you. Well, yeah, and and, and there's. There's lots of international news on this front that we do need to talk about because I think it's actually relevant because I think Australians are starting to lose sight of 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 the broader globe. Um, but we also need to consider the fact that there is also obviously the extension of the lockdown in Victoria and 22 new cases in Victoria. Um, 
that brings us to just under 100 people uh, infected currently uh, in the state of Victoria. Only six of the 22 uh, were not in ISO for their entire period. So that's a really good sign and hopefully that means Victoria will be on track to come out of lockdown in the middle of next week. Um, there are, however, 18,000 primary contacts in Victoria that have to be traced and tested and that's obviously a huge, huge effort. South Australia is an interesting example because coming back to what you said about you know, you, you go hard, you go early, you put in place supports, you don't muck about. Um, I've got to give some credit to to a Liberal government on this front because um, as much as Stephen Marshall has decimated the public service, has tried to privatise the pub, uh, public transport and a whole range of other awful um, neoliberal things, uh, you know, four cases, he locked down just straight away, seven days, what they're calling a hard lockdown, um, which is obviously the opposite of a Gladys mockdown, put in place a 2.5-kilometre, um, you know, radius rule, which is even less than what we've had in Victoria, uh, and it's and it's for seven days. And they've had one new case today as a result. Then, you know, they've got issues around testing. This is the problem when you decimate the public service, the people are having to wait up to 12 hours to get tested. But credit where it's due, they have not hung about. They've they've obviously looked over their border with New South Wales and gone, that's not where we want to be. Um, looked over at Victoria and gone, you know what, there are some lessons we can learn there from there and implement. So hopefully South Australia, you know, they do their seven days and they can come out of it. But I, I do get the distinct impression that um, New South Wales is going to you know, have been the first in and the last out when it comes to to this outbreak. Oh, it's so frustrating. It's just, it's making me really angry. And, of course, we're all back in that position. And now I don't even know how many lockdowns I've been through now because I was through, what, four in Victoria and now one in New South Wales and it's so hard. And just this psychological pressure that's on everybody and I just, I personally don't have the confidence that the state government in New South Wales have the situation under control. Like the the tetchiness of the Premier and the defensiveness of John Barillaro and, you, you know, these this constant sort of, this constant sense that they're not on top of it, that they are running behind the virus. Mm. And that's certainly the impression that you get when you listen to the chief medical officer and her, let me tell you what's going on, let me tell you how serious this is. It's really destabilising because you just think you knew that this was coming. You knew this was on its way. You had seen what happened in Victoria and the way it had to be dealt with and you just refused to do it. You rolled the dice on a state of... How many, how many people live in New South Wales? Seven million, eight million? Like, Something like that. You rolled the dice thinking that the luck that you had last year would hold out again so you wouldn't have to make any ideological compromises. Well, here we are, love. Well done. You know, gambling with people's lives and mental health and safety and the rest of it. Like, it's so frustrating. It is frustrating. I mean, I have to say, you know, <sighs> I, I do draw some... I do draw some glimmers of hope. You know, I've seen um, the HSU in New South Wales, the, that's the Health, Ser- Health Services Union, um, the SDA who obviously represent retail workers, the United Workers Union um, who represent workers in all sorts of industries, um, the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, the ASU, the Services Union, the United Services Union which represent council workers, you know, fighting for and winning you know, pandemic leave, vaccine leave. I think something like 75, 80% of local governments in New South Wales now have those kinds of leave thanks to the thanks to the unions in New South Wales. And I know nationally unions have been pushing for vaccination leave. They've been obviously pushing for the reinstatement of JobKeeper. They've forced Morrison's hand in terms of lifting those payments those what he, what does he call them emergency state of emergency payments or something like that mm. you know like it's it the, the glimmer of hope here is that people are still standing together and getting getting wins getting outcomes van I know this week 
you know, we've had more people contact us this week directly to say they've joined their union, um, people who work in the public sector who've, who've you know, really um, taken heart from the support that they've gotten from the public through here. And I just, you know, I know they're our sponsor and I bring it up every, every episode, but, you know, Joining your union in times like this is one of the very best things you can do. It gives you that sense of community. It means you've got the information. It means that you're standing with people in the same boat as you and you're not being divided off and, and isolated, you know. So Australian It means unions, that someone who knows how to fight is fighting for you. Yeah, well, fighting with you. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? You know, you see workers standing together. Even in these times, you know, standing together to get these wins. And that's why I keep saying AustralianUnions.org.au slash WOW, W-O-W, join your union, do it today, don't wait. You know, it's a ta- it's tax deduction, but more than that, it's standing with people in the same boat as you who will stand with you to get an outcome. And we're seeing it work. We're seeing it actually tangible results. You know, these are not statistics. These are tangible results in places where the the coronavirus is having an impact and being in the union is actually having results for people. Because, um, you know, Van, one of, the, one of the things that I think is, is important for us to talk about is, is the vaccination rate as well. You know, like well, it's are, still appalling. It's literally still appalling. And there are still so many aged care workers, disability support workers. There was a heartbreaking news article on the ABC yesterday about aged care workers who were absolutely desperate for the vaccine, who knew how vulnerable they were, who, because they take their work seriously and professionally, were terrified um, of, you know, it, of um, unwittingly spreading the virus to the vulnerable people who they look after. And this one woman was crying, like was just like the, you know, she feels guilty and frightened and vulnerable because of the failure to get, to run a system that could actually vaccinate people who do this work. And this oh, is it's heartbreaking. And this is where I get really, really angry because obviously today, you know, Morrison gave his um, press conference, which, you know, I tweeted and, and lots of people tweeted about that press conference. One of the things I tweeted was, you know, we, we paid him more to do that press conference than he's prepared to pony up to a part-time worker to, to survive for an entire week. And I think it's a disgrace because the only things that I took out of it are that he lied about how many people have been vaccinated. He said 14.5% of the population are vaccinated. Well, the numbers on the Guardian website tell me that 11.3% of Australians have been vaccinated. So he's pumping up his numbers there. He says that we're on target, you know, to uh, to have everybody vaccinated. Well, the gap on the target is 4.9 million doses uh, of, of vaccine. You know, it, it was a it was an absolute disgrace in my view, that press conference today, because as you say, mm-hmm. there are people out there who take their jobs seriously, who take the safety of the people they work with seriously, their families and their communities seriously, and, and he's saying, oh, you know, go out and get a vaccine. Well, there are no vaccines. Even Gladys, even Gladys, who has has backed him and been backed by him pretty staunchly throughout this, has made it clear they need more Pfizer and, and it's not there. All this talk about bringing forward Pfizer and all the rest, it just hasn't got, he hasn't done the work to have the vaccines available. It's its an absolute disgrace. Oh, it's shocking. And it's I think- just such an, it's an abrogation of responsibility. Um, Bill Shorten, remember Bill Shorten? Remember how there was the option of having Bill Shorten as the Prime Minister and the other option was Scott Morrison and Shorten, seems to have been quite liberated by not being in the leadership. We've spoken about um, some of his his other very pertinent comments uh, on the um, failed vaccine rollout and how it should be described with words that we can't repeat on an Apple podcast um, before. But he was talking about how, you know, Morrison wanted the job of being Prime Minister 
and, you know, wanted the job so badly that during the election campaign there was nothing that Morrison wasn't prepared to pork barrel or or, you know, deceive or mislead or wrought in order to get it. Like this more than half a billion dollars spent on car parks that people hadn't, commuter car parks that people hadn't asked for so Liberal candidates would have announceables, you know, the sports rorts, the very interesting relationship with Clive Palmer and the very helpful work he did for the Liberal Party in running like that massive, massive multi-million dollar Mm. campaign to attack Labor constantly and run an air war of um, attack ads over Queensland, all those things. Like Scott Morrison was absolutely ruthless in the pursuit of the prime ministership and he's like the dog who caught the car. Now he doesn't know what to do with it. You know, what the job actually is is taking responsibility for the community. It's not winning a certificate for most popular boy at scout camp, you know. Like I'm, not it's, sure, I'm not sure he'd have won that certificate anyway, to be honest. Well, I mean, you know, we can look at elections as a popularity contest yeah, or, yeah. oh, he's the kind of guy who, you know, I'd prefer a daggy dad to a committed lifelong union organiser who fought for working people and literally saved the lives of some miners buried underground in Tasmania. I mean, okay, make that decision. People make political decisions for all kinds of reasons. But... But it is that point that he's so desperately wanted the job and has absolutely no interest in doing it. And and again, that, that you know, the last few weeks have really demonstrated that fact. You know, he's he's gone missing. He's turned up really today just to defend himself. You know, it, it, the line about it's not a race. He was did. he very offended? Because he's usually very offended oh, whenever he was. anybody. He was very offended. He did. Uh, whenever or... anybody raises, and those of you who are considering buying my book, can I tell you, quoting Scott Morrison talking about how very offended he is to be associated <laughs> with his QAnon friends, who he is, of course, associated with. He's very offended. You can read a wonderful transcript of uh, of that particular engagement in the book, which I'm sure you'll enjoy. It's a it's an amazing thing to watch to watch a man who who kind of puts forward this idea that outrage culture is a problem, just be so consistently outraged when people point out to him the things that he has actually said and done. And, you know, today he's basically spent all day, you know, this morning he did five, six, maybe seven FM radio programs where he essentially was being outraged about people telling pointing out that he said it's not a race. Oh, well, I said that about, you know, TGA approvals. It was like, no, mate, you said that well after approvals for vaccines were done. And then he had a press conference where no new information. There was the lie about vaccine levels. Then there was, you know, I'm, I'm pay- we're paying all these people money. We're, we're doing all these things. It's just, you know, people need to just be a bit bit nicer to us. You know, we're doing all the things and hopefully people will get back to work and hope, you know. People are on ventilators. People are actually on ventilators. There are people who are in ICUs. There are people who have died. There is that unbelievably tragic story about the mother of the removalists, these two guys who, you know, totally stuffed up and did, you know, carry the virus with them as they were travelling around the country. Their mother died alone like in her home of coronavirus, she was only in her 50s. It is absolutely heartbreaking what happened to that woman. I cannot think of a more devastating way to die. I just can't think of it. And Scott Morrison doesn't want to take any criticism. He's offended by criticism. Well, I'm offended by the idea that innocent people have died in their home when we had an available window to actually actually protect ourselves against the spread of the virus. Like it is not acceptable for him to put the rest of the country through this ongoing trauma and all the things that it is doing to people because he doesn't want to take criticism for being incompetent. And I think I think that sums up the mood of the nation quite strongly. You know, journalist after journalist today has asked him um, whether he would apologise or whether he was sorry about the the way the rollout has happened and he's just steadfastly refused time and time again refused and and you know one one um, one FM radio personality um, you know said look I'll take a I'll take a my bad I'll take a my bad and he wouldn't even he wouldn't even give that and I think 
No, he's been more interested going on radio to talk about the internet rumours that he soiled himself at the Engadine McDonald's or, or what, it, like, you know, this crazy urban myth about Morrison at the height of literally a lethal outbreak of a new variant of the virus which shouldn't have come out into the community. And this is the thing. The Queensland government have said again and again they were prepared to, they were prepared to build quarantine facilities, but it's a... Commonwealth responsibility. They needed the support of the Commonwealth to to put that infrastructure in place. Victoria was begging for those kind of facilities to for the federal government, which has the legal responsibilities to yeah. build them. All of these things that could be done, and Scott Morrison didn't do them. Didn't do them. And while we are all suffering, all suffering from this, everybody, more than half the country under lockdown. He's doing radio interviews about urban myths about himself because he's only really interested in talking about himself, not what any of the rest of us are going through. It is sickening and it is absolutely, it's in, it's enraging. We shouldn't be this traumatised. The Prime Minister of this country has visited an extra level of trauma on top of everyone because I just cannot imagine anyone who is currently under lockdown looking at his statements and his just total ineptitude and going, yeah, I feel like we're going to get through this and it's going to be okay because of that guy. I mean, come on. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it, it is it is shocking. And the financial impact as well for people now I think is really starting to, to hit home. You know, we're seeing again those lines at Centrelink that, you know, this is the second time in the space of a year where Scott Morrison has been responsible for long queues in freezing cold weather outside Centrelink offices because of the policy decisions that he's made. And today, again, he 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 doesn't – it's not even that he defends that. It's that he promotes it. It's that he's so proud of the fact that 1.2 million Australians are excluded from disaster payments, 400,000 of which are children. It's that – He's, you know, so proud that people have to go through Centrelink in order to get support or through Services Australia, as it's now called. I mean, it, 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 you're right, Van. I, I just don't, I don't know anybody who's looking at this situation and feels a sense of confidence that the federal government under Scott Morrison and his ministry of just hopeless, you know, hopeless, oh, hopeless. third-rate yeah. car salesmen are, are going to actually get us out of this. And and this is and this is the thing, right? This is what's really, really disturbing. Who else have they got? Like, yeah, that's right. That's I mean, right. those who are like, oh, Morrison's got to go, and it's like, you tell me who we're going to replace him with. Well, are we going to replace election. him with? There should be with an election. Peter Dutton. No, or should we replace him with Peter Dutton? Uh, should we, we should... replace him with? Christian Porter, or how about Linda? Re- Linda, I'm going to call a person making rape allegations a lying cow, Reynolds. But or why don't we replace him with maybe Bridget McKenzie, such a Greg, reputable Greg character, Hunt or Alan Alan Tudge, um, or no, yeah, or Alan Tudge or Greg, or Angus Taylor. Any of these people, all of whom are under clouds of scandals, mismanagement, rorts, like all of these things, and that's. Who's running? Maybe, but we should just put Barnaby in charge. Barnaby, who said he did not care what happened to people in Melbourne, didn't care. Deputy Prime Minister does not care what happens in the nation's second largest city. I think, Van, this this is this is the historical point, right? That that in in our nation's history and in the history of democracies, when governments have failed like this, there have been elections. You know, if Morrison believes so strongly that he's doing such a good job, that he's, you know, on target and that he's picked up the pace and he's he's the man for the future, then he should put it to the people. You know, we've had elections in wartime, we've had elections in pandemics before, and we've done that because the government needs a mandate to govern, and the people need to have confidence that the government is delivering for them. And frankly, and I know it's not likely to happen because why would he, right? At the current, on current numbers, he'd probably lose. And we know, if nothing else, we know this about Morrison, and that is that he's effectively a coward. There's nothing truthful about the man except that he is afraid afraid to lead, afraid to have the responsibility of actually being Prime Minister. So 
you know, can't make a be. hard decision, can't account for a bad decision, isn't around when anything goes to pieces. He doesn't hold a hose, mate. You know, what a revealing statement that was. He doesn't hold a hose. He doesn't hold a dose. You know, he doesn't hold anything. He absconds. He goes missing. He goes on holiday. On holiday. He blames other people. But I think the thing that is most outrageous is that he does an appalling job at leading this country, absolutely appalling, and yet has the temerity to stand in front of a press pack and attack people for criticising him as if it is a worse sin to criticise the anointed Scott Morrison than it is for him to lead such a, a mismanagement of a pandemic response that we blow our window to stay safe and people are in ICUs and dying of the disease again. I think like uh, it's it's worse. It's more he is more offended by criticism based on facts of his own performance than he is in the reality that he. I just I can't. I just can't. can't I genuinely can't. can't. I can't. He's an absolutely terrible leader. He is he is Menzies in the at the outbreak of the Second World War, thinking it was appropriate to go to England and be part of a war cabinet there, as opposed to actually defend Australia. We are in the same situation that we were in in you know thirty nine until the government fell, thanks to those independents who went, God help us, and um, and uh, brought in Curtin, who, of course, you know, <laughs> led Sorry, Australia dimension. through the war, built the welfare state while he was doing it, <laughs> well, turned Australia into a model economy. Like, talk, oh, my man, God. Man, sorry, man, sorry, sorry, everyone. No, I think, I think you, you, you're, you're in the mood of the nation. There's no question about that. But, you know, let's while we're talking about terrible leadership, you know, today is today Freedom Day. It was yesterday Freedom Day in the UK, and of course, by freedom I mean the freedom to get sick and die. Um, they've removed all restrictions, all restrictions in the UK. Um, interesting to note, uh, Morrison did mention that this was an experiment that he wished England well with. He also mentioned that the Netherlands had a Freedom Day, and two days later had to go into a lockdown. Uh, is Boris Johnson? They've just given up in the UK. Is that is that sort of what's happened? They've gone. Well, Boris, Boris Johnson's now. another one. You know, wanted the job, was literally prepared to to economically destroy Britain by pulling it out of the EU and mm. leading that campaign to make himself prime minister. He wanted the job so badly, stabbed every everyone possible who got in his way, um, lied to the Queen, Boris Johnson. Um, now you're prime minister of Great Britain, and what have you done? You've just let the virus loose again. Somebody was making a point on Twitter the other day that this is a man who was literally in ICU himself with the virus who came out of that experience with absolutely no sympathy for anybody else who would go through it, which is just astounding. Like so psychologically, it is astounding that he could have been that sick and literally does not care if other people become that sick. Because let's put Freedom Day into context. Yes, in Great Britain, their vaccination rate is much, much higher yeah. than Australia's. But yeah. what we know is that there are people who can't be vaccinated or whose immune systems remain compromised even with vaccination. You know, there are people with and well, they're and still the, well below. Man, they're still well below the eighty percent mark, aren't they? In oh terms yeah, of, they're, yeah, they're below it. Yeah, and of course they're dealing with their crazy anti-vax problem like every mm. Western country is, mm. you know, mm. these disinformation-saturated lunatics who live on the internet and think that, you know, eating bananas will save them from coronavirus, which is because you can imagine. Bananas itself, the, isn't it? It is totally bananas. And Johnson, it's just become too hard for Boris Johnson. Like he's kind of, we're at the stage with Boris Johnson that we were with Trump just before Trump lost the presidential election in the United States where it's become too difficult for Boris Johnson and he just doesn't want to do it anymore. Like he just, he's not really interested in saving people's lives anymore. He just wants to be popular and have fun again. His health minister, his new one, because they've been through a few um, because the last one was Scandal, caught, scandal, scandal, yeah. Yeah, having, having an affair um, at the time that he was supposed to be social distancing and it was all caught on video and it was very British and very boring at exactly the same time. So 
So the new health minister who's double vaccinated um, has caught coronavirus and, you know, and Johnson himself had to isolate because he had been a close contact of the health minister <laughs> and was announcing Freedom Day and that everybody could go back to nightclubs and everything was going to be fine. Well, let's just put that in context that in the week leading up to Freedom Day, there were 40,000 cases of coronavirus yeah. in the UK. It had had a 41% rise in a week. And it's the middle in of summer. Week. It's the middle of summer there. Like it is. environmental conditions, uh, you know, in terms of for coronavirus, they're at the, the worst point of the environmental cycle for coronavirus to spread and they're up 41% in terms of infections. 41% in a week, Ben, in a week. In a week. But the most important thing is we all go to nightclubs again. And friends of mine in Britain, one of whom has had coronavirus oh, twice God. because his body developed no immunity to it the yeah. last time, are just like, hello, we are Great Britain. We are a Petri dish of potentially infinite disease. Uh, this friend of mine, by the way, is a scientist who is like, we know that these environmental conditions around coronavirus, like around coronavirus yeah. is that if you let it spread, it mutates, which is how we ended up with the lethal and more deadly, um, oh, you know, more contagious uh, variants. Very and now Britain is essentially going, well, how, you know, should we give it a stab, see what happens? And this, this idea, the fear of like thousands of doctors and scientists mm. is that is precisely what will happen because Boris Johnson has said let's go to nightclubs again and he just wants people to talk about something else and sort of get on with it and live with the virus, which means, of course, die with the virus if you catch the virus and you are in any way susceptible to the virus. You're not going to live with the virus. No. You're going to be afflicted with pain. And, of course, there's a movement now, and I know you hate talking about America, but there is a movement mm. in the United States mm of people who want recognition. It's actually happening in a few places around the world. I think it is happening in Britain as well um, For to look at um, having coronavirus and having long COVID in particular mm. as a new health category and recognising that these people are essentially entering into an, an unknown future as people with a with the disability of having had coronavirus, yeah, well, I've seen and this the effect from, that that lifelong has on their health. Yeah, I've seen some research. There's some research going on on that, and and I think, you know, as you say, it's not living with the virus because we're already seeing in the UK doctors saying that their ICUs are already full. You know, and it's not just. I mean, coronavirus itself is bad, and it, and will have these huge impacts. Uh, on the health system and the people who require the health system, but it'll have these knock-on impacts for people who require other forms of health treatment as well because the resources simply won't be there. I mean, if the UK, which is a wealthy, well-equipped country with high levels of expertise and technological advancement, is already at the point of saturation and no longer has capacity... You know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand what will happen in other places. And again, I am just going to tip my hat just a little tiny bit, not too much, to Stephen Marshall because, you know, the, the, the lockdown in South Australia, um, I think partly is due to the problems that they have with their hospital capacity. You know, the campaign that, that Labor and the health unions in South Australia have been running to point out that actually there are significant problems with their health sector and their hospital sector um, have probably played some part in the fact that they have to lock down. They can't afford to have an outbreak. It's, uh, it's truly troubling. It's a truly, truly troubling time in this pandemic. Um, Van, we have to have some good news. I think the whole country is is dying for some good news. <laughs> just just quietly, I, I think. Uh, you know, I hear there's some good news uh, coming out of Greenland about fossil fuels. Yeah, well, it's not good news for fossil fuels. So Greenland, which is of course. Um, Everybody should know that Greenland is a territory of Denmark. Yes, um, up in the Arctic Circle, has a very small population of around fifty-seven thousand people. Um, it has a new government, and it's an Inuit government because Greenland is 
traditionally the lands of the Inuit people, um, the government of the Atagadakiv, and they're like, yeah, we're not we're not doing the fossil fuel thing. So it's they what they will good, not good be issuing. On, good news on moving away from fossil fuels. Yeah, so they're not issuing exploration, uh, oil and gas exploration licenses, even though there are literally tens of millions of barrels of oil underneath Greenland. And the reason why this is such a significant decision is that um, Greenlanders have wanted independence from Denmark for a long mm. time and have wanted to be their own country. But their economy is literally supported by the Danish economy. So Denmark, the Danish government gives like some enormous percentage, two-thirds of its national wealth come from, of Greenland's national wealth come from Denmark. Yeah. It's almost like an act of charity. And even though there is an independence movement there uh, and, you know, they want to be their own country and, and have serenity, the the opportunity would be to exploit the oil and gas that's there and pay for it. And they've said no, which is kind of amazing because it's like, you know, like some things are more important and more important is not to threaten life on earth. There's no point in having a country if everybody's going to die. So we will not be expanding. We will not be um, realising these resources. We're going to do our part and make this massive sort of, you, you know, like, Sovereign sacrifice yeah. in in order to 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 do our bit to address the problem, which I think is really moving. Like I think that's. It is. I mean, it you is, think about all of the struggles around the world for like indigenous government and sovereignty and recognition, all those things, and how deeply tied that is into a sense of community identity, and to have a new government go, yeah, no, we can't, we can't justify it. It's just amazing, and it makes the selfishness of the fossil fuel industry and their total refusal uh, to do what needs to be done to address the climate crisis even more disgusting. However, there is some good news as well from the fossil fuel industry. So the fourth largest um, fossil fuel company in the world uh, is Reliance Industries, which is in India based oil and yeah. gas company um, and the um, the richest energy baron in Asia, uh, Mukesh Ambani, has has looked at the future and seen it's on fire and gone, you know, as a capitalist, I can't. I can't conceive of a future for um, fossil fuels and has just invested $10 billion, $10 billion, which is larger than the GDP of some countries, um, into what he's calling gigafactories. So gigafactories are energy, you know, energy infrastructure where they – they unite solar arrays, hydrogen fuel and battery grids to generate energy. And he's just gone, that's the future, that's where my business lies. Um, I'm moving in that direction now to get the jump on the commercial opportunities of the future. So that means that that kind of that reorientation is happening and that there are capitalists who are so self-interested they're even willing to give up fossil fuels um, in order to stay profitable well, in the new energy future. I think, I think Van, you know, this is a good time for me to, uh, to talk about, uh, you know, the Australian Union's position on just transition, right, because we, we know that we have to transition away from fossil fuels um, in the short term, in the medium term, in the long term, and we know that there are communities that will be impacted by that, and we know that workers are usually the ones who bear the cost of capitalists' decisions to move money around. So it, you know, it's important to be part of your union so that you are protected in those circumstances, so that you have a say. And we're seeing this in communities all over Australia and all over the world. When you think about the transition that happened in Germany around coal. You think about what's happened in other places around the world and it and it's because workers have been together in union and have demanded a just transition. They've demanded a transition that has put the needs of them and their communities first, not just the whimsy and will of, of billionaires, no matter how well-meaning. Um, so join your union, australianunions.org.au. Literally one of the best things you can do for the environment is to join your union and make sure that workers have a seat at the table 
in the broader conversation about what transition means for us. You know, I know you and I had a really transformative experience at the Paris Climate Conference when we were going to the union events and hearing just the amazing mobilisations of community and policy that were possible because of strong unions. I remember you and I were really heavily influenced by an organiser from um, the Nurses Union in New York where that union had taken a position that climate change was a health issue and that what their members would have to deal with in the future meant because of climate change meant they had an obligation to take action now and just this incredible legislative impact that they had had, you know, around regulations, preparedness and And policy agendas because they had taken that position. And an obligation too to support workers in those industries that would be affected by by the transition, by the change in the in the economic um, reliance from fossil fuels to renewable energy, and making sure that those renewable energy jobs were good jobs. Like, I, I just I remember I remember hearing the, that organizer speak, and just how powerful it was, how how comprehensive. The, the view was around the health issues, the economic issues, the transition. But also the, the solidarity issues. with other unions Absolutely. and other workers and yeah, but, a sense that we are all in this together. And that sense of solidarity. Because can, can um, I just say, Van, it's not, it's, not, it's not coal mine workers who are, um, you know, you're not, they're, not, they're not out there going, oh, we want to open more coal mines. They, they just want good jobs that help pay the bills and make sure they've got a future for their family and that's especially in an australia where you know there are 12 hour queues to get a pittance on centrelink if you lose your job yeah and i mm. think that that's i wonder why communities are really attached to the well-paid jobs in the coal industry ben it's a mystery if only we could think <laughs> of why that is happening well i think that solidarity you know that the, the the new york nurses were showing was really um, powerful and and you know the the solidarity of the Inuit government of Greenland uh, I think is a really good example that they're demonstrating to the world that's a sense of global solidarity they're putting the needs of the entire planet ahead of perhaps their own um, deeply held desires so what great news what great news to end uh, the this week's episode on in a in a week which has has had its challenges uh, for everyone. I want to thank everyone who has contacted us over this week. I want to thank everyone who has expressed their solidarity, love and concern for both Van and I in our separation, forced separation due to these lockdowns. Uh, it has been really, really heartwarming um, to, to hear from people. Um, and, again, I just want to say, that we know there are lots of other people who are doing it even tougher than us. We're very fortunate in so many ways um, in our lives uh, and we want to send our solidarity to everyone who's in lockdown, everyone who's doing it tough because of the poor leadership of the Morrison government and others at this time. You know, we really appreciate it. Please do share this episode, do like it, do subscribe to our channels. They are still all free. Uh, do uh, do check out Van's articles in The Guardian, check out our Twitter accounts, do let us know if you've got any other stories. At some point, I'm sure we will talk about things beyond COVID. I really look forward to that day, as I'm sure you do too, Van. Oh, don't we all? I, I, you know, I'll be uh, writing a pop culture column for The Guardian this week and I'm literally overjoyed about it. I've never <laughs> wanted to write about something that was not related to coronavirus or ever in in my life i just can't bear it you know and more than half of the country is stuck in it all of our lives on hold you know our relationships separated households separated people in really precarious situations because of their caring commitments trying to juggle just this horrible thing that we're living through and you know my heart goes out to everyone who's who's really struggling with this absolutely i'm thinking of you and um, I know that you're thinking of people like me because there are millions of us in That's this situation right. now. That's right. There we are. We are. We are not alone. We are not alone. So. That's the end of the show for this week. Join us for the weekend wrap on Sunday. Love you, Vanny. Oh, I love you too, and I miss you so much. I miss and you. I miss the dog. 
And it's really hard. I love you. Bye. Bye.